so far in Genesis 4, we've witnessed the devastating effects of the malignancy of sin. When we worship, we must have as our goal to please God so that we won't allow sin to work its malignancy into our lives. There are three players in this scene of Genesis chapter 4, the Lord, Abel, and Cain. But the narrative is really focused upon Cain as the original model of one who rebels against God and refuses to repent. Inappropriate worship, followed by inappropriate response to rebuke, followed by murder. It all started rather simply. Cain brought less than his best in worship, and God called him on it. If Cain had followed the pattern of his parents and confessed his sin, all would have been okay. But Cain refused to heed the Lord's warning and let sin get the best of him. And the result, the murder of Abel, his brother. There's much discussion in scholarly literature as to why the Lord rejected Cain's offering. Some say that the Lord was arbitrary in his acceptance of Abel's offering over Cain's, and Cain just should have gotten over it. I reject that explanation as inconsistent with the rest of divine self-disclosure regarding the person of God. God is not arbitrary in his dealings with men. He has a purpose in all that he does. Others say that God rejected Cain and his offering, for they are, they are one and the same in God's eyes. The offering is so tied in with Cain that it's Cain and his offering, because Cain's was a bloodless sacrifice, but Abel brought a blood sacrifice. The vast majority of Hebrew scholars reject this understanding as well. First, there is no indication in this passage at all that this is a sin offering, which would have required a blood sacrifice. There's no indication that this was a sin offering. And second, both offerings are identified by the same Hebrew term, minha, which the later Levitical Code regarded as an acceptable offering. No, the problem is not in the identity of the offering, but in the attitude of the worshiper and the resultant quality of the offering. Both brought what they had. You can't bring in worship something that you don't have. I can't bring in worship what you have, and vice versa. They both brought what they had. But Cain brought an offering. The Hebrew text goes out of its way to tell us that Abel brought the best of what he had. The quality of the offerings then reflected the attitude of each of the men. That's the difference. It's the attitude. It's the internal, not the external, that is in view here. That's why one offering was accepted and the other wasn't. For God sees, not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but God, the Lord, looks at the heart. The quality of what we bring to God in worship reflects the internal attitude we have about God. And the first thing that God wants us to bring in worship is ourselves. And he doesn't just want part of us. He wants all of us. He wants us. And by that I don't mean just showing up. I mean really showing up. And I'm speaking of corporate worship now. I mean coming with an attitude of intense reverence, respect, and love for God. 
that will be expressed in every aspect of worship. Not just in listening to the reading of the Word, and not just listening to the exposition of the Word, not just in the singing, but in every aspect of worship. Every single thing that we do, our praying, our giving, it should reflect the best of what we have. We should bring all of us, not just part of us. Intense reverence, respect, and love for God should be expressed in everything that we do. I have a friend, one day I was talking to her about her worship service. She goes to a different church, and I asked her, how was your worship service last week? And she said, it was marvelous, it was great, it was fantastic. And I said, wonderful, tell me about it, because I'm always interested in hearing what someone else feels like is an incredible, worshipful experience. And she began to delineate all the songs that they had sung, not only themselves, but the choir had sung and the praise band and all. It, it was just fantastic to her. And I said, that is, sounds wonderful to me. What did the preacher preach about? And she said, oh, let me think about that. I'm not sure. Did he do a sermon this week? And I thought it, it really struck me as fascinating, as interesting, because to her... Worship was the music. And as soon as, as soon as the music finished, worship was over. That's why I'm against calling the, the music leader the worship leader. Because worship is much more than just music. It includes music. And we should bring all of ourselves when we worship in song. And that includes whether you, the times whether you like the song or not. <laughs> I can read your lips sometimes. It doesn't matter if you like the song or not. You should still bring all of yourself in worship. It's a bit prideful not to sing because you don't like that particular song, unless you have a problem with the words, and then we can talk about that some other time. On the other hand, I've talked to folks, and I'll ask them about the worship experience that they enjoyed last Sunday morning, and all that they will talk about is the pastor's sermon, as if nothing else counted as worship in that service. You see, some people think that worship ends after the music stops, and other people think that worship doesn't begin until the pastor starts. And both views are wrong. Everything that we do today, we are worshiping. When we sing, we're worshiping. When we pray, when we give, when we listen to the word read, I suppose even when the announcements are given, <laughs> we're worshiping. As long as we're bringing ourselves, we're worshiping when we interact with one another. You, you realize your interaction is a, is a testimony to the love of Christ? If there are folks here today that have never trusted Jesus Christ to forgive their sins and to grant them eternal life, they're going to watch you to a certain extent. And if they don't like what they see, if they see something other than love, if they say meanness and backbiting and sniping and gossiping and maligning, why would they want what you have? You see, the way that you interact with one another in a genuine way, is worship as well. Everything that we do today is worship, and it should express our intense, not just our reverence, but our intense reverence for God, our intense respect and intense love that we have for God. Cain failed in worship because he had failed in a prior relationship with his Creator. His worship was just reflecting what he had in his soul. So it's, it's fruitless for a worship leader or a song leader or even a pastor to try to get up and gin up some enthusiasm for worship. It ought not to have to happen that, day, that way. We ought to bring that enthusiasm because the, of the love we have for God. And if we don't have that, either we're feeling poorly, and that's certainly understandable. Many people are from time to time. 
But if we don't do that, it means something's wrong with our internals. Something's wrong with our attitude. Because you can't just turn it on and turn it off. This needs to be something that we live all week and then bring with us to church on the weekend. Does that make sense? You see, that's where Cain failed. He couldn't just turn it on when it came to bringing an offering. And again, the, the text doesn't say specifically why God didn't honor Cain's offering. That's, what that's why there's so much ink spilled about it. But we know at least this much, whatever the offering was, it was brought with the wrong attitude. And that's what God saw. He failed because he had failed in his relationship with his Creator. While all sin is exceedingly sinful... It may help us to understand the crooks of this passage if we picture it this way, using an analogy of physical disease, if you'll allow me. First, Cain has a less than reverent, respectful, and loving attitude toward God, which results in him bringing less than an acceptable offering in worship. This would be analogous to a a microscopic, malignant group of cells in your body. A microscopic, malignant group of cells in your body. Back in 1978, I attended a a conference on cancer. It happened to have several leading authorities uh, from the United States in the research community that were speaking. I happened, by the grace of God, by divine providence, to end up sitting next to a man named Harold Manor, who was the chairman of of the biology department at Loyola University at the time, And he was one of the nation's leading cancer researchers at the time. He's with the Lord now, but he was was, uh, very much in the news at the time. And I remember talking to Dr. Manor. I wasn't talking. Actually, I was listening. He was doing the talking and talking to the table. But I remember part of of their research at the time, which has been confirmed over and over again since then, is that their, their feeling was that every human being has some sort of cancer in their body all the time. And don't don't let that scare you. The the body has mechanisms to fight that cancer off. So every human being, because of the way we're bombarded with these free radicals and pollutants and bad air and bad water and all these other things, we all have cancer in us, at least at a microscopic level, malignant cells all the time. But the body has incredible defense mechanisms that fight these things off. And so so the, 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 the cancer never becomes what we would call cancer. We never even know about it because it was caught at an early at the earliest of stages, before you even realized something was going on. Your body fought it off. Your immune system fights it off. With sin, it would be wonderful it would be that way as well. When we sin, it would be so very helpful to fight it off at the earliest levels, when it's just at the microscopic level. Now, with sin, it's not a perfect analogy, because we've got to know what it is before we can confess it. But if we'll confess quickly, then it never has an opportunity to grow into the next stage. But if we let it fester, then it may. In the same way, if your body doesn't fight it off with your immune system, if something happens and those cells are just too strong for it, it becomes more of a full-blown case. So first, Cain had less than a reverent, respectful, loving attitude toward God, which results in him bringing a less than acceptable sacrifice in worship. I don't want to be too convicting here, but I wonder how many of us today have brought less than our best. How many of us today are worshiping like Cain worshipped? Now, the Lord rebuked Cain. In the second phase of this, God graciously calls Cain on his lack of bringing his best in worship. 
And Cain, rather than responding with, with repentance and confession, or confession and repentance, and turning back and saying, Lord, you're right. You're absolutely right. I didn't bring my best. My attitude hasn't been what it should be. Let me change that attitude. Instead of Cain doing that, Cain responds in anger with God, which we've spoken of many times past. Anger of God is irrationality to the maximum. Anger with God implies that God, not, not we, did something wrong. And how blasphemous is that? If I'm angry with God, it means that I feel like God wronged me in some way. And that is utterly blasphemous. That malignant group of cells about which we spoke a few moments ago has now grown into a palpable lump under the arm. Now we have a problem. Now, now it's advanced much further than it ever should have advanced. Rather than Cain confessing and repenting immediately, as soon as he realized that something was wrong in his heart, even before the Lord rebuked him, Rather than confessing immediately and turning away from that, he kept going down that bad road, and that bad road has consequences. Sin is not benign, it's malignant, and it will destroy if it gets an opportunity to. So these cells have now, the body didn't fight them off to use our cancer analogy, and then they've grown into a palpable tumor, and now you better doggone well do something about it, hadn't you? Now you have a choice, and and there are many choices I know in the the medical field with all different types of, of cancer remedies nowadays, but hopefully it would be treated in some way. Whether it be the standard traditional treatments or non-traditional treatments, I would hope that it would be treated in some way. Now here you would really have hoped, once the Lord rebuked Cain, you would really have hoped that he would have seen, oh my goodness, it wasn't just my conscience convicting me, the Lord himself was convicting me. The Lord himself talked to Cain and said, this is a bad road you're going down. And Cain refused treatment. So is it any wonder that in the next phase, Cain's irrational anger moves into rage, anger into rage, and it results in the murder of his innocent brother. Now the malignancy has metastasized all over his body. It could still be treated, but it's much more difficult. Sin is not benign. Our Lord Himself, our Lord Himself, explained that either we master it or it will master us. Either we dominate it or it will dominate us. In this dispensation, the mastery of sin comes, of course, through a moment by moment submission to the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. A moment-by-moment submission to the indwelling Holy Spirit in our lives. We can't do it of the flesh. Nobody's pretending that. It's of God that we can do it, and He's given us the ability to do it. Remember Romans chapter 6, Paul's great message in that chapter, the believer has the responsibility to say no to sin. Then in Romans chapter 7, Paul seems rather frustrated And he is frustrated. He says, you know what? Even though I know that I should say no to sin, oftentimes I don't. The things I don't want to do, I do. And the things I do, I don't want to do. Something's wrong with me. Woe is me. Who is going to rescue me from this body of corruption? The answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. So in Romans chapter 6, 
we have the responsibility to say no to sin as a principle. That's our responsibility. Romans chapter 7, even though we have that responsibility, often we don't do it. Often we say yes to sin far too often. Then in Romans chapter 8, God's provided a way out. And that way out is the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's because of the Spirit's ministry working through our lives that we have the ability to say no to sin. It doesn't guarantee it. But He gives us the ability to say no to sin through the indwelling ministry of the Spirit in our lives. I'd invite you now to open your Bibles to to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, and today we'll start our, our study in verse 9. Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9, and we'll go through verse 15 today. Genesis chapter 9, Genesis chapter 4 rather, verses 9 through 15. Read along with me if you would. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and wanderer on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is too great to bear. Behold, thou hast driven me this day from the face of the ground and from the face I shall, from thy face I shall be hidden, and I shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. And it will come about that whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. God's question to Cain, where is Abel your brother? is reminiscent of the interrogation of Adam in the garden. You'll call when God went looking for Adam and Eve in the garden, the first thing he says to Adam is, where are you? Now, it's not that he didn't know where, where, where Adam and Eve were. This is a rhetorical question. It's, in fact, this is a rhetorical question as well. When he says, where is Abel, your brother? Both questions are rhetorical. God knew where Adam was, and he knew all about what had happened to Abel. He's giving Cain an opportunity to come clean. Unlike his father, who confessed his sin, albeit reluctantly, Cain does not confess his sin and instead lies to God, adding to the problem. You see, here's where the, the microscopic group of cells has grown into a lump under the breast. There's a problem, and it's growing. And instead of confessing and repenting when he had the opportunity, he refused. And it gets worse. He's digging himself the proverbial deeper hole. And then he attempts to elude the question altogether by adding this insipid question, Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is an unspoken yes You are your brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. And that is made clear in the progress of Revelation. Both Mosaic Revelation and legislation and the New Testament teachings make it clear that we live in community. And yes, we do have a responsibility for our brother and our neighbor. But God is not going to be sidetracked by that diversionary technique on Cain's part. 
So he, God moves straight ahead in verse 9 again. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And then in verse 10, he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. In verse 10, we have a second rhetorical question that echoes the interrogation of Eve. The first question echoed the interrogation of Adam. Now this question echoes the interrogation of Eve. What have you done? Remember earlier on when when God speaks to Eve, it can almost be understood. What in the world have you done? What is this that you've done? And that's what he does to Cain as well. What have you done? Cain, what in the world have you just done? But again, unlike his mother who confesses, Cain refuses. God God then follows, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now, Now there's one phrase in here that rarely gets the attention that it deserves, and that's the phrase, to me. You see, later on in in scriptural revelation, the the Bible will tell us, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And that's a very difficult concept for us to allow. Because somehow we think that God either doesn't know about it, or if he knows about it, he's not going to do what needs to be done about it, so we take matters into our own hands. Either with our hands, or with our mouths, or with some other action. And God says that's wrong. And here, do you see... where Abel's voice is crying out. It's crying out to God. God knows exactly what's happened, and God will take the appropriate measures. Thank you very much. We have to trust Him to take vengeance as He sees fit, to, to extract the punishment that He sees fit. So let's don't miss those words. To me, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. But this reminds me of one of those Perry Mason moments. You know, what have you done? And then it doesn't even hardly give him a chance to answer. And, and then it's kind of a gotcha moment. You know how, you know how Perry would, would say to a one who was guilty, he would hold up the knife and he'd say, this is... I would, you probably wondered why I had this back here, didn't you? This is the murder weapon, is it not? It's already been admitted into evidence, has it not? This is... This is this is exhibit number 23, correct? Yes, it is. It's been established by the forensic medical examiner that this is indeed the murder weapon. Perry looks at the defendant, or the, the one who is guilty in the courtroom, and says, you ever seen this before? No, I've never seen that before in my life. Never even seen a knife that looks like that in my life. And you know how, what Perry would do next? Then why are your fingerprints all over it? Then for some reason that I've never been able to figure out, they always confess right then. You know? <laughs> yes, I did it. Take me to prison. <laughs> if Cain would have only done that. But there's nowhere in this text that it says he ever confessed or was repentant. You realize that? Never, even after he was shown the knife with his fingerprints on it, he doesn't confess. And he doesn't repent. Oh, he's going to be upset about his punishment in a minute. But he doesn't confess and he doesn't repent. When we confess to God, by the way, we're not revealing to God some new information. You realize that? When you say, Father, I have sinned, and then you delineate that sin, you're not surprising him with anything. 
As one of my African missionary friends used to say, all you're doing is telling God something he already knows. He already knows full well what we've done. That's not what we do when we confess. When we confess, we're acknowledging to an omniscient God, an omniscient God, that what we did was actually wrong. That's what we do when we're confessing. He already knows what we did. In verse 11, the ground, or rather, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. This is the first murder in history, at least in human history. Satan is said to be the original murderer, and there's a lot to that. But this is the first murder in human history. And now Cain will have to pay the price. The ground was cursed because of Adam's sin. And now... The ground has been polluted because of the sin of Cain. Verse 11 expresses the first time in human history that an individual human being is said to be cursed. The serpent had been cursed, you'll call that, from Genesis chapter 3. The ground had been cursed because of what Adam did. But now Cain is cursed. The ground is polluted And Cain is cursed, which means that Cain has now been separated from the place of blessing of God. The punishment, in our minds, may not seem to fit the crime, but God is infinite in his wisdom, and he certainly feels like it did. So this is his punishment in verse 12. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. Remember, he's a farmer. This is his job. This is what he does. When you cultivate the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. You shall be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. A farmer needs to reside in basically one location if he's going to prosper in the farming business. It's a little difficult to be a wandering farmer and have the opportunity to really establish crops. It takes some time. You've got to do something in each season So what this punishment means is that this farmer is now going to be a vagrant and a wanderer. If you're a vagrant, it means you're hanging out in some place you're not supposed to be. So Cain wasn't supposed to establish a city. If you've read ahead, you know, in not next time's lesson, but when we get back from uh, Dr. Leitner's uh, talk to us, and then the following week, we're going to see that Cain actually disobeys even this, and he attempts to establish a city. But the Lord has pronounced that he will be a vagrant and a wanderer. You can't be a farmer if you're a vagrant and a wanderer by definition. If you're a vagrant, it means you don't belong in that particular spot. See, this is a pretty severe penalty because now Cain's ability, we could say, to earn a living has been severely hampered, has it not? It's been severely hindered. Not only that, if Cain wants to have a family, his ability to provide for his family is going to be severely limited. He's going to have a hard time eating. From now on. But I want you to notice in verse 13, Cain said, The Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. You see, Cain protests, but he doesn't confess. Nowhere in this passage do we see confession and repentance on Cain's part. Nowhere in the passage. He gets the point regarding his punishment, to be sure. Because again, if you're a vagrant and a wanderer, you're going to have a hard time feeding yourself. The ancient translations of verse 13, the ancient translations of the Greek Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate read, 
my guilt is too great to bear. When Martin Luther and a few others read this, they surmised that Cain is really asking for forgiveness here. But while the Hebrew term avon can be translated guilt or sin, in this context, it's not only the guilt, but the, the, but the result of that guilt that is in view, and it refers to the punishment of Cain. So here I would respectfully disagree with Luther's understanding of this passage, as well as the translators of the Septuagint and the Vulgate, and I would agree with the modern translators and almost every, matter of fact, I couldn't find a modern translator that translated the other way, but pretty much, I'll say, every modern translation translates it the same way the New American Standard does, which is correct, I believe, and Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. There is nothing in this passage that gives us a hint that, that Cain confesses and repents and turns back to God. Now, by the way, some have asked, well, what does this mean about Cain's salvation status? I don't know. The text never tells us. That's not what this passage is about. This passage is about unrepentant rebellion against God. I wish it said more about his salvation status, uh, but it, it does not. We're not saying that confession and repentance are necessary for salvation. But that's what, was called, that's what Cain was called upon to do here. So whether he was a believer or not, I don't know. The, the text just never tells us. Cain is like the proverbial child who's upset at being caught but not remorseful at the commission of the offense. All of us have seen children like that. All of us have done that from time to time. And maybe not just as children. Perhaps we've done that as adults as well. So nowhere in this passage, once more time, no, no more in this passage does he ever express the slightest degree of repentance. Von Rad expressed it well, I think, when he wrote, and I quote him now, Under the weight of the curse, Cain goes to pieces, though not in remorse. Further, Cain fears retribution from others because of his evil actions, and probably with good reason. The human tendency is to take vengeance. The human tendency is to take revenge, it's, at least for men, it's the tendency. And I think for women, uh, e even more than you might think, perhaps a different kind of vengeance. Somebody wrongs me, I'm going to wrong them back. Somebody hurts my kids, I'm going to hurt you. Most of us don't want to let the, the normal conventions of government and laws take their course. It's part of the human weakness, it's not part of our strength. Now this doesn't mean that human governments ought not to take vengeance. We see that actually happening in the Bible from time to time. But that is a different thing from an individual doing it arbitrarily. So Cain fears retribution from others. Now, who are the others that he fears retribution from? Because he's the firstborn, isn't he? You have Cain and then Abel. Well, obviously, there were brothers and sisters that were born. There may, be a, there may have been a great length of time that takes place in this narrative as well. So by the time Cain is a wanderer, he may very well be fearing vengeance from other brothers that he would have had or perhaps from cousins that have been born on down the line. The text doesn't tell us. Again, that's not the point of the passage. Why capital punishment is not applied in this case, I don't know. So if you were to ask me, that's what I'm going to tell you. I don't know. By the time, though, we get to Genesis 9, just a few chapters over, 
capital punishment for the crime of murder will be the norm. Some people like to say that capital punishment was just part of the Mosaic Law, and we're not under the Mosaic Law today, so therefore I don't believe in capital punishment. It's interesting to me to find out how many people say that that are not dispensational. They get dispensational real quickly when it helps their case. But no, Mosaic, the Mosaic Law was not the only place where capital punishment was outlined. It was outlined way before the Mosaic Law. Depending on when Noah was alive, maybe a thousand or more years. Probably a thousand or more years before the Mosaic Law. But why God doesn't institute capital punishment here, I don't know. Here, God decided the punishment himself. God is perfectly fair, and he decides this punishment, and no man should intervene with a harsher punishment. God has spoken, and none of, none of Cain's relatives, because they're all his relatives, none of his relatives need to take matters into their own hands. God has spoken. No one should intervene with a harsher penalty. Now, finally... When we get to the final verse here, in verse 15, So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him. That's by the Lord. Vengeance will be taken on sevenfold. Now, that should have been a good enough warning to make sure nobody bothered Cain. It's, it's possible someone might have tried, but this would be a very serious warning. You do to me, it's not like I'm going to do back to you double you do to me, God says, I'm going to do you back to you seven times what you did. So it is a great deterrent. But the text goes on to say, not only will vengeance be taken sevenfold, the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, lest anyone finding him should slay him. This is another one of those aspects of this passage that we just really don't know a lot about. It's interesting, sometimes it's almost like we get bored with Bible study and we try to pick out certain aspects of texts that there are no answers to, and that's what we want to discuss over and over and over again. And sometimes we just have to say, I don't know, what was this mark or sign of Cain? I don't know. I know it's been a hotbed for discussion, but of it we really know nothing. So it's futile to try to say too much. I know the Jews believed that Cain himself was the sign. How that works, I'm not really sure, but they believed in, in ancient times that Cain himself was the sign. Others have speculated that God might have made some kind of mark on Cain's body, perhaps on his forehead, something maybe like the mark of the Antichrist at, at some point, maybe his forehead or maybe his arm. But really, it's unfruitful to spend too much time in discussion about issues that the scriptures don't reveal a clear answer to. It can be rather frustrating. So I won't spend much time with that other than to tell you what those two views were. I don't know. The point is, though, that God marked Cain in some way as to shield him from vengeance on the part of other human beings. I don't know, maybe God gave him a t-shirt and said, you mess with this fellow, I'm coming at you, sevenfold, sign God. You know, like the billboards, you know, I'm coming down there, and it says God. Some of those are actually pretty cute, I think. I don't know what the sign was, but whatever it was, everybody got the point. Don't mess with Cain. I have already punished him. And that's a lesson I think we could take from this passage, in addition to all the others about sin as we close. Let God do the punishing. Sometimes we want to pile on. 
Sometimes we say, I, I know what that fellow did. I know what she said. And yet it seems like life is working just great for her. I'm going to intervene. Don't do it. First of all, you don't know that life is just great for them. You know, they may have millions, but they may not be enjoying their millions. You know, they may have a wife and two kids, and they may not be enjoying that wife and two kids. I don't know, and neither do you. Let God handle the punishment. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. In the first 15 chapters, or first 15 verses of chapter 4, this message rings out. When we worship, we must have as our goal to please God. So that we will not allow sin to work its malignancy in our lives. Oh, Heavenly Father, a passage like this hits us right between the eyes. How many times we have brought less than our best to worship. And Father, we recognize the sinfulness of such a thing. Help us in the future through your indwelling Holy Spirit to catch sin in its infant stage. To confess it, to turn away from it, and to bring you our best. To bring you our best in our individual worship as we, uh, as we participate in that all week long. And Father, to bring you our best in our corporate worship as we gather together in times of corporate fellowship. Heavenly Father, I do also pray that if there's anyone here today that, that doesn't know your Son, that has never received the free gift of eternal life, that they would come away understanding that you love them so much. Father, I thank you that it has been revealed in your Scriptures that you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Father, none of us can be good enough to earn your favor. None of us can be good enough to earn salvation. And Father, I thank you that you've provided everything that we need. So if there's anybody here this morning, Father, that has never personally trusted Jesus Christ, place their faith in him and him alone, apart from any works they might do to receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work on their soul even now and convict them of the need that they have for a Savior. And convict them that Jesus Christ is the only way to you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, Father, the Apostle said. I do pray that anyone here who has never trusted Christ would get that point and they'd get it right now. And they would not leave this building today without personally, in the privacy of their own thoughts, trusting you. I know you, you won't coerce their volition, Father, but I do know that you'll convict them. And I pray that that conviction would be strong. For those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ to, to forgive our sins and to grant us eternal life, Heavenly Father, I do pray that we would be convicted in a different way, that we would be convicted to reverently worship you, to respect you, to deeply love you, and to express that reverence and respect and love by bringing our best in worship, beginning with ourselves. Father, we'll ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.